Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. So 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that? Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Alex Trulaw with you on Countrywide, coming to you from Mount Isa in northwest Queensland. On this episode, you'll hear why you might be struggling to find your usual fruit and veggies in the supermarket. You have made a number of remarks on China-Australia relations on a number of occasions and have repeatedly said that you will deal with China-Australian relations in a mature manner. I attach great importance to your opinion. And a major step in improving relations between Australia and China happened on Tuesday night when the leaders of the two countries met in Bali. Find out what was discussed in this episode. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. If you live on the east coast of Australia, don't hold your breath for any changes to the benign weather conditions. The Weather Bureau is forecasting a wetter-than-average summer for the east coast of Australia until January. Dennis Luke is an independent weather forecaster who follows the EU and US computer modelling on climate, and he says he thinks we might see wet conditions through until March. And he says the models are showing signs of another severe wet weather system coming at the end of November. Well, one of the things that I've noticed with the uh, with having a triple La Nina because we've had uh, two or three since the Second World War, and what I've noticed is the um, the measurement pretty much uh, the first two years. You might as well add that up, and that's what you're going to get in the third year, and that's pretty much what what's happened this year. So one of the unfortunate things is that there's not good news because I actually forecast this earlier this year and I expected it to last for at least a minimum of um, 9 to 12 months and it doesn't look like it's going away and I'm expecting uh, more for the east coast of Australia, uh, more so for Victoria than uh, New South Wales and Queensland but it's still not going to go away just yet and I'm expecting something probably later this month. And you've been looking at some computer modelling. What, what are they telling you? And, and why are they saying it's going to remain wet? Well, the sea surface temperatures along the equator are basically the driving force of this, the, uh, the ENSO, the, uh, the El Nino Southern Oscillating Index. And that's all um, showing uh, the actual position of where it's all going to uh, continue coming across. And that's what's going to keep happening for a minimum of probably uh, two to three months at the at the worst case scenario. Um, the best case scenario may be earlier, but I can't see that at the present time. We have been hearing from a number of farmers who've been saying this after a wet year, quite often we get very dry years, even a drought. People are worried about that because, uh, you know, a lot of crops have been spoiled. They don't have a lot in reserve. They don't have a lot of fodder in reserve, those sorts of things. And they're worried that if it does become hot and dry, people could be in for trouble again. One of the things that uh, La Nina, which is what we're experiencing at the moment, normally only turns up about once every seven to ten years. And as I said before, that uh, it's, um, it's not an unusual thing for us to have two or three in a row. And this is unfortunate, and that's one of the things that we're going to be dealing with. So once we uh, transition back from... La Nina to neutral, uh, the only possibility that we've got to come out of that is uh, either staying in neutral 
which is highly unlikely, or going straight back into an El Nino. As to the severity of an El Nino, uh, that can be uh, from anywhere from a weak to a strong one. Uh, the computer modelling at the moment is uh, unfortunately showing a little bit more than uh, just a weak one. And are we going to get severe weather? Is, is, that, is that what's on the cards, more of the severe weather that we saw, like, say, for example, over the weekend? Yeah, later this month I'm expecting more. The presumption that I can see is that uh, it's going to be along the east coast of Australia and Victoria. Who gets what? Uh, I'll let people know on my social media. What about, is it global warming? Is it, is it climate change? Is that what we're seeing? People can talk about those sorts of things uh, until they're blue in the face, but the way I see it is that uh, there has been a slight increase in the overall temperature, uh, but when, when, you, when they come out and say that uh, the world has increased by one degree, they're not sort of central specific to Australia. As for global warming, uh, when we get into an El Nino, that's all we're going to hear about. But when we get into La Nina's, we get um, climate change. So that's why I'm, I'm so annoyed with the fact that we're not hearing from scientists here in Australia that what actually is going, what is actually happening here on, on our continent that we're affected by what takes place uh, in our oceans around us and not from what we hear from uh, scientists and other people in the northern hemisphere. I want to know what's happening here in the southern hemisphere and I want it to be compared with what's actually going on in the northern hemisphere to understand what we're dealing with here. That was Dennis Luke, an independent weather forecaster, speaking there with Michael Condon. This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to Countrywide across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. A major step in improving relationships between Australia and China happened on Tuesday night when the leaders of the two countries met in Bali. So will the meeting and the thawing of relations help producers of commodities like wine, barley, lobster, export hay and beef, which have all been locked out of China to varying degrees over the last few years? Warwick Long spoke with CEO of the National Farmers Federation's Tony Ma about what this means for Australian agriculture. Oh, look, I think it'll be encouraging, Warwick. I think, uh, you know, China's such a key market for Australian agricultural exports. They take uh, about a quarter of what we produce, about total exports, a uh, quarter of them go to China. So incredibly valuable and important market. And it's really encouraging that two leaders have got together and we hope that it results in a rebuilding and a strengthening of the relationship. Obviously, the, the pictures and the symbolism of the speeches is important, but what do you think a realistic expectation is from a meeting like this about things like exports resuming? Look, I think it was a significant step that the Prime Minister specifically raised trade relations. So, you know, there's lots going on in the relationship and around the world, but for the Prime Minister to raise trade relations, you know, specifically on some of the agricultural products, obviously. Um, But having said that, it will obviously take a while. And as long as it all continues to go in the right direction and, you know, we look at strengthening and rebuilding and and enhancing the relationship, I think most farmers will be encouraged by uh, the meeting. With uh, export bans or or tariffs in place on things like wine, lobster, barley, hay exports and and restrictions on some beef exporters as well still in place, uh, are those industries hurting? Are there particular industries desperate to see a resumption in trade? 
Look, I think most industries, Warwick, would you know, look forward to stability in the market. I mean, the, the disruptions that we've seen over the last couple of years have come from a range of areas. The stability and the certainty is what I think people are looking for. So as long as we're moving you know, in a positive di- direction, uh, the conversations are, are constructive and, and positive, um, you know, that will be the main thing. I think we're, we're so lucky in Australia that, you know, Australian farmers produce some of the best food and fibre around the world. So while it takes some time to re-establish and rebuild new markets, we're well placed um, to diversi- continue to diversify and, and put products into markets that, you know, are paying the right price and for the right conditions and those sorts of things. So, yes, China is absolutely critical, um, but likewise, so is continuing to look at diversifying markets. I guess what I'm trying to establish is how high on the list of importance is things like resuming the China trade in agriculture at the moment? It's very high. And I think as uh, as I alluded to before, it's really encouraging that in the 30 minutes that you know, the Prime Minister has had with uh, his counterpart in China that trade was raised specifically. Um, there's lots that they could and, and can talk about. Um, so from a government perspective, from an industry perspective, I think the resumption and the strengthening of the agricultural trade between Australia and China looks to be at, you know, the, the top of the list, near the top of the list of, of discussions, which I think is really encouraging. We've had this meeting. What do you hope happens from here? Well, I think there has been, so, you know, this meeting, um, the meetings that or discussions that uh, Foreign Minister Wong have had, I think what we'd like to see is a continuation. So it, it's not going to be solved. The, you know, the relationship isn't going to be totally repaired after one 32-minute meeting. So what we'd look to see is more discussions, more conversations, more engagement between the two countries. Obviously, industry has been talking to um, counterparts in, in China for a long time, continues to. So that'll continue to build with, you know, the encouraging signs from the two leaders. So I do see that it's um, a bit of a pathway, a bit of a journey. It's not going to be solved overnight, um, but it's certainly an encouraging step. National Farmers Federation's CEO, Tony Ma, speaking there with Warwick Long. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Australians are lucky to enjoy a never-ending summer of fruit and vegetable supply because there's always a ripening season somewhere in this huge country. But the strain on farmers from a rolling sequence of natural disasters is evident in supermarkets who are apologising for the lack of supply in fresh and frozen shelves. Chair of the Tasmanian Vegetable Council farmer Nathan Richardson says disruptions to supplies and price hikes are likely to continue. Right from Queensland to Tasmania, it's uh, in most growing regions have have been affected um, with some weather event, and uh, depending on when it strikes, it's either really bad delays in in northern Australia harvesting, and and uh, we've had crop losses. Um, you know, we've we've lost critical planting windows through every major growing region in Australia uh, in the last few months, and you can't make up. You can't make that up. The four, we have four seasons and, uh, you know, you can't go back in time and plant out a seed. It doesn't work. What sort of uh, produce are you talking about there across the regions? You, you name it, basic, basically everything. Uh, leafy greens, uh, all your processing vegetables, um, above and below ground crops, every, everything has been affected. And then you throw in the, the tightening labour market, all those issues... 
So it's going to be hard to guarantee those at the normal windows of harvest, normal harvest windows? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so particularly here in Tasmania, we, we basically had the whole month of October where there was no crops planted. And uh, that that also limits your processing capacity. And what that can also do is, is it puts pressure on other crops that are grown that have to get through that factory as well so everything matures at different times but when we, when we have adverse weather events that that can bring on maturity and so while you're waiting for one crop the next crop's racing in because it's had better conditions and uh, it, it could be a double whammy here in Tasmania for for rain affected crops clashing with with later sown crops that are that have could uh, hypothetically bloom in in the later season. What sort of crops do you think could end up being at the factory at the same time? Different plantings of peas uh, and they could clash with uh, broccoli uh, and beans. So those those are the three major crops that, that could clash uh, and particularly different varieties of, of each of those uh, cultivars. So not to sound alarmist but um, you know, we're a long way from getting anything in the back of a truck yet. It's only the second week of November. We've got to get through the next 50 to 60 days relatively smoothly. Um, and, we, you know, of course, you don't know what's what weather's coming, but we just we really need good conditions now. We really do. It's really important. There's a lot going on here. The wet La Nina year, droughts in Europe and parts of the US, Ukraine, war-driven price rises in fuel and fertilisers, and the shortage of immigrant workers. The combination of everything is likely to impact supplies and prices well into 2023. Farmer Nathan Richardson again. I'd say to the consumer about prices, it's uh, definitely not the case where it all goes back to the producer. Uh, there's a lot of other links in the supply chain um, that have to that have to get some relief from uh, higher wages, uh, higher fuel costs, higher insurance, running costs for for, for vehicles and and equipment, uh, packing sheds. Um, but I'd say, uh, as an industry to the consumer, we're we're replying really good, nutritious, affordable food. So would you say ride over any price hikes? I, I honestly don't think consumers in Australia are going to have a choice. They're going to have to buy local because there won't be the influx of overseas goods coming into Australia like that we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years. So we've been uh, very fortunate to have uh, an alternative, but uh, very quickly those alternatives uh, could be uh, in tight supply as well. So, you know, if we want to look after each other, look after each other's business, families, jobs, economies, our way of life. It's it's really important that we do just keep picking up Australian-grown uh, goods, whether it's uh, food or, or manufactured goods, clothing or or anything. It's, it's really, really important at the moment. Shoppers are watching closely. You look around and everyone's looking. Everyone's sizing up what they've got to buy. You know, it's just not grab and walk off with your trolley full. Everyone is really got a list, got a calculator. You never saw that before. Trying to be selective and get things that are in season, obviously, so the price isn't too high. But with the current conditions, with the floods, etc., then prices are escalating quite rapidly. 
That was a couple of shoppers from Hobart, Tasmania, chatting there to Fiona Breen about the fruit and veggie prices. And in a statement, frozen vegetable processor Simplot says it's anticipating there might be an impact due to crop availability. However, it's still evaluating the effects of some recent rains. And McCain's says it's been challenging for potato growers given it's been one of the wettest seasons on record. It doesn't anticipate recent rainfall across Tasmania will affect the ability to supply customers in the immediate future. This is an ABC podcast. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. When most Australian women have a baby, they have choices public or private, midwife or obstetrician, home or hospital. They can walk into a store and pick up formula if breastfeeding doesn't go well. But in the bush, it takes a whole lot of planning, countless hours of travel, days off from work and stress when things don't go to plan and you're thousands of kilometres away from help when you need. Ellie Bradford has this report. Pip Clifford knows all too well both the joy and heartbreak of having babies in the bush. She has four children, two daughters and two sons, twins, who were stillborn in 2019. The boys were monochromatic twins, so they shared the same sack, same everything. Um, so they were incredibly high risk and we had been advised that since day one. Um, unfortunately, at 25 weeks, their cord got knotted and resulting in them passing. I remember it was a Monday and I just said to my partner, I said, something's not right. I'm going to take myself to the doctor. So I left him at home with Lucy, who wasn't quite two then. Drove myself to Quilpie, but the doctor there couldn't help me. She said, oh, drive yourself to Charleville and get an ultrasound, which was another 200 kilometres over, like on top of the 110 I'd already done. So I drove myself to Charleville and I was alone. So I called my midwife, Nicola, and said, can you come to the scan with me? And she came with on her, just her day off. So she came in and held my hand and just said to me, you know, like, I'm so sorry, honey, like, so sorry. It was it was very traumatic, but I think having her there and a hospital that was, you know, solely thinking of me that day made it so much easier. Um, you know, they Nicola organised a photographer to come in and she did a free photo shoot with us and the boys so that we had photos to like remember them by Um, a number of the um, you know older ladies in town made some nice little dresses and a special box with you know for memories and all that kind of things with them and I just feel like that was so much nicer than if I'd been in the city where it would have been like oh you know come in deal with this and then leave we were given as much time as we needed and so much support. Bob was able to take, you know, a little bit of time to stay at home with us without having to stress about, you know, going out and doing cattle. He had the neighbours offering, you know, we can come and do boar runs or we can do this if you need. After losing the twins, Pip lost another pregnancy through an early miscarriage. But eight weeks ago, her rainbow baby, Sophia, arrived. I just remember like clutching her in my arms and just, you know, think, saying like, you know, you're finally here. I know you're safe. And it was very emotional for everyone. What is that complicated mix of feelings like holding your healthy baby, but of course missing William and Oliver as well? It was it was really tough. Like you feel like I should, you know, I'm, I'm so happy she's here. But at the same time, you're like, you know, I wish the boys were here. They'd be three by now. Um, that, you know, Lucy 
while she was only one and a half and they passed, we, you know, we've got our pictures up, we've got their urn, you know, up on a shelf in the lounge room and some little toys that we got them for their first birthday. And she plays with them and says, oh, can I play with my brother's toys? And so, you know, she was happy. She said, you know, my little sister's finally here. It's taken so long for her to come. Um, she wanted to tell everyone in the hospital that she had a little sister. And it was so tough that, you know, we were so happy that we had her finally, but it was so tough, you know, knowing that, you know, we should have all of our four babies, but we don't. Quilpie mum Cara Marsh knew that there would be a lot of travelling involved in having her third baby, but birthing without her husband by her side was not part of the plan. She went into labour five weeks early while at an appointment in Toowoomba. said that it was pretty high risk emergency, so I had to go in straight away. So he got in the car and drove but by the time I had to have her he was only in Roma so they actually offered to FaceTime him into the the birth which I was having a cesarean birth and the anaesthetist was holding the phone and showed him the whole experience probably a bit more than what he was bargaining for seeing but yeah he felt like even though he was so far away he didn't miss the birth and um, because she was 35 weeks and so tiny, she was only 1.7 kgs born, but healthy. By the time I got out of recovery, he was there with her. During her high-risk pregnancy, she had to fly 1,000 kilometres to Toowoomba for appointments. But her biggest worry was that Quilpie didn't have a GP, which meant they had to travel for scans. I was scared that if I didn't feel lolly move and I couldn't have an ECG, I had to go two hours to Charleville and I know myself that two hours is too long for responding to that. So that was something that was on my mind the whole time. That access to services is the biggest difference for many women. It's a gap Nicola Freiberg, who was also Pip Clifford's midwife, wanted to fill when she started as a lactation consultant in her hometown of Charleville. I didn't have great support breastfeeding-wise with any of my babies, especially my first, when you really need breastfeeding support, that lacked a lot and living away from family was really hard. After having our second, who was preterm and coming back to a small rural remote community, there was just nothing. The the closest lactation consultant between here and Longreach or here and Toowoomba is, is me and yeah, I feel Uh, That makes me excited to feel that it's a service that is very much needed and I'm able to to provide it, whether it's in person or via video. She has her own story, though, after being flown out to Brisbane with her second baby when she went into labour at 28 weeks. She says her experiences have helped in her role. I do start a lot of my consults with, I breastfed from 31 weeks with our second. You can absolutely do this and your baby can absolutely do this. And I think that gives them a lot of hope in that moment. There is a lot of extra stuff that goes with it, a lot of a lot of counselling, a lot of sort of social work and counselling. They've had that continuity of care with their midwife and then they've sort of they've put out, you know, they've been they've been pushed out into the community with no real ongoing support. Um, and we do lack child health nurses out this way and that's a huge a huge gap in healthcare out here both seen as personally and professionally but yeah 
there's a lot of a lot of hats that you wear. Back on Arinya Station, after years of heartache, life has turned around for Pip Clifford and her gorgeous little family. Life on the station is great. We've had all this rain, so there's that. You know, we're not worrying having to worry about drought. Um, everyone's just super happy that we have Sophia. Lucy loves her, and yeah, life's you know really back on track now. That was Pip Clifford from Orinia Station outside Quilpie in Western Queensland speaking there with Ellie Bradford. This is an ABC podcast. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. South Australia is now home to the largest potato packing facility of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. The $45 million packing shed and warehouse officially opened in the Mallee region of the state by Australia's biggest potato supplier, the Pie Group. Deputy General Manager Renee Pye told Cassie Howe the 15,000 square metre warehouse has doubled its production capacity from 22 tonne an hour to 45 tonne an hour. Yeah, so it's the largest facility of its kind because of the roof, so it's under one roof. We've also got some other big packers in South Australia, like you said before, one of the biggest states for growing and packing potatoes. So yeah, if you're sort of visioning the process, um, we wash and pack about 300 tonne of potato a day across six days a week. So it goes through a washing process like a rinse and a polish and a cool. Five times. Yeah. They get washed five times. Yeah, around about five times. So <laughs> um, there's lots of water and water going through the process all at the same time and then they get sized at the end of the line and they go through a grading machine which has a series of cameras that are taking pictures of every spud as it goes through. It's a lot of potatoes that are going through this system. What sort of a year has it been for your farm here when it comes to potato production? It has been very wet. Yeah, no, it has been wetter than usual, but it has been a good year for us. So we've had a good growing year with the mild conditions and the wet conditions. And we've been able to pack all the product that we've had in the ground and distribute it through to the supermarkets and the markets around Australia. You you did have processing facilities on the Northern Adelaide Plains where you bought uh, some pro- some processing capacity there. But you've shifted a lot of that to Perilla, which is really, I mean, I had to say the middle of nowhere. It could also be the centre <laughs> of everywhere. But uh, why did you decide to move that uh, processing capacity here to Perilla? It's definitely been called the middle of nowhere a few times. <laughs> it's an awesome place out here. There's great communities. So, yeah, essentially we do probably 95 to 90% of our production of potato growing out here and we were shipping up to 12 trailers of potatoes every day to Virginia, which didn't make sense. That's about three hours on the road, three and a half hours. So it made a lot more sense to build our packing facility here and save on the mileage on the road and the emissions that we're putting out as well and also the freshness and the quality of that product too it's not traveling three hours on a 45 degree day because we do get those here in South Australia and in terms of things that just made sense for us to build the packing facility here there was really only one marker that came up that was going to be difficult and that was getting labor absolutely and you had to put in quite a lot of effort to attract workers here what have you done Yeah, so sort of in hand with bringing people to the community, you need to build accommodation. So there also isn't a lot of accommodation in the Mallee region. So we have built 27 houses, family-styled houses, so three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses across both Lamaru and Pinaroo. And that has been something that has attracted those families to move from Adelaide or Murray Bridge out to 
the Mali region. And then we've also been working with sort of community groups like Lamaru Ford and trying to get people introduced into the community and get involved in a few things that have been happening around the place. And what did you say? You had about three, 400 people who, who work for Pi Group? Yeah, so we've got around 450 employees in total and we've probably got about 250 here in the Mali region. And you also got about 40, was it, odd people who moved across from Adelaide to Perilla to be a part of this. What was it, do you think, that attracted them to to coming here beyond just the work? Um, I think they were probably keen to stay with the same company that they had been with in the previous years. Hopefully we've shown that we're a great work place to work for and that they enjoy working for us. And then I think some people were actually looking to come out to the country instead of being in the city. They were keen to for some fresh air, get involved in a more tight-knit community and have a nice time and raise their children out here. Pie Group Deputy General Manager Renee Pye speaking there with Cassie Howe. And that's all we have time for for this week on Countrywide. If you want to know more about rural stories, visit abc.net.au forward slash rural.